So, so what we're going to do is, um, let me, let me kind of give you a, a real quick overview of what we're going to do. So we've got um, eight weeks. This is going to be an eight-week study on Sunday nights. And so um, if you can make it for the food, it's 5.30 every night. If you can only make it for the study, that starts, um, we typically try to start at 6.15. So we're getting a little bit later start tonight, um, which is fine. I'll just talk a little bit faster and we'll get to try to get you out of here at 7.15. What we're going to do the first three weeks is we're going to be very, um, what I would call theoretical, but hopefully not to a point that's not a value to you, but we're going to be looking at the science and art of Bible interpretation. Like how would you approach studying the Bible? What are the key components of, of doing so? So we're going to do that the first, um, two or three weeks here and, um, and so, and then once along the way, what we're going to do is it's going to be a, it's going to be a workshop of sorts. And so there's going to be a lot of practical exercises that we're going to be doing. Um, there'll be some, some minor homework assignments. And when I say minor, I'm thinking two to three hours a week at most. Okay. And some weeks it'll be less than that. Okay. So it's just, it's just something that, um, you know, if you run into a busy week and you can't get the homework done still come to the study you just may you know you can participate as much as you can but you'll obviously get a lot more out of it if you can do the homework um and and so we'll talk about that as we go um so so if you would just open your notes um you i didn't put them in the three ring binder yet because sometimes it's hard to flip and write um so i left them all loose but we'll start on page one there uh with the hermeneutic study and then tonight we're going to look at the, this, uh, just really introducing the topic and then looking at the, the first step in Bible study, which is observation. Um, and for some of the younger folks, some of this will be a repeat from the summer, but um, you can't hear it too much. Trust me, it'll be good. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, so we want to define our terms. And the first term we want to define is this big word called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics, you and the reason I'm defining them is sometimes I'll use them. And so I just kind of want you to know what I mean when I say it, if you've never heard it, but it's the science and art of interpreting the Bible. And so you'll have a blank on your sheet and then on up on the screen, every word that's highlighted in yellow will be what you fill in, uh, in the blank. And so when we talk about hermeneutics, um, you'll hear people say, oh, well, that was, that's a good hermeneutic or, oh, that's really bad hermeneutics. And, and all they mean by that is, is when somebody gets to an interpretation, they're saying, oh, they, they approach that in a way that makes sense. That's a good hermeneutic. I can see it in the text. Or if somebody says, well, this really means this. And it's like, that is, you've heard people give interpretations. You're like, they are out to lunch. And you would say, well, that's a bad hermeneutic. It's not, it's, it's not there in the text. And we'll kind of look at that in more um, detail here. But the derivation of the word uh, hermeneutics actually comes from Hermes, um, who was a Greek god who brought messages of the gods to mortal men. So that's kind of where the dare, you know, it's not people just sitting around trying to make up weird, you know, names like, like some families do sometimes <laughs> with some of their kids, it seems like. But this actually has an origin, you know, this isn't just someone making something up. So hence the word hermeneutics came to refer to a transmission of a message with understanding uh, to someone. Okay, so when we talk about biblical hermeneutics, what, what we're assuming, I'll tell you what our assumption is, is we're assuming that the God of the universe 
wants to communicate a message or transmit a message to us. And so how do we go best about interpreting, understanding what his message is to us and doing it accurately? That's the goal uh, of good sound hermeneutics. And so, again, remember the main goal, and we'll say this multiple times, but the main goal of Bible interpretation is to determine the original singular message that was communicated by the original author to the original audience, okay? And so just a quick question, where are you in that sentence? <laughs> You're not yet, and that's okay. And, and so when we're looking at, the, at the, the biblical steps of Bible study, we're looking at observation, interpretation, and application. You come into the third step, application process. The first two have nothing to do with you. We're trying to get to the original singular meaning of the original author to the original audience. That is the one interpretation that we're looking for. Based on that, if we can get that accurately, then we can hopefully accurately apply it to our lives. And so an accurate hermeneutic or a good hermeneutic is going to allow us to determine what that original message was. And so as we continue defining our terms, um, we want to look at a couple of different types of hermeneutic approaches. So generally speaking, there's, there's two types of hermeneutic approaches. Um, let's look at the bad one first. All right, we'll do the bad news. Um, the allegorical approach. Okay, and so the allegor- approach, allegor- allegorical approach is is an interpretive method that assumes that the Bible has various levels of meaning not expressly stated in the text. Um, This method tends to spiritualize things rather than take language at face value, and it looks for a secret or hidden meaning which is often unrelated to the true meaning of the passage. And so we'll look at some examples of that here in a second. Unfortunately, this approach tends to leave a person more confused about the original message that the original author wanted to communicate to the original audience. Um, sometimes if you get into, if you've ever been in a, in a group Bible study, um, where it's more of a, what I'll call a share and care Bible study, not, someone's not teaching, you're just reading and everyone's just going around telling what it means to them. Um, if you're in a group like that with a group of people that have a, a bad hermeneutic, you're going to come out of there with six or seven different interpretations. And, and many people think, wow, that was deep. Like, wow, that was deep. And I think, wow, that was awful. <laughs> it's like, there's not six or, seven, six or seven different ways to interpret this. And so we're not trying to get our personal interpretation. We're trying to get the original interpretation. And so when you begin to alleg- allegorize passages, um, unfortunately, you get more confused um, about what, what the passage actually is saying. And so allegorizing is too subjective. It undermines the truth of the text and it leads to questions and doubts regarding the factual reliability of the text. Let me give you a quick example. Um, If you've got your Bibles, go with me to Revelation chapter 20. And and this is a really big um, example of an allegorical model, but you'd be surprised at how many people employ this model. It's uh, It's really an interesting thing to see. But in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And here's what I want you to do when we read. I want you to observe the number of times 
the number a thousand is used in this section. Okay, just I just want you to when I'm done, tell me, oh, it was five times or it was four times or whatever it is. So Revelation 20 verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more, no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had, not, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. How many times? Five. 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 Yeah. Anyway, so five times. And so an allegorical interpretation that's very popular amongst um, a lot of different theologians who are known as amillennialists is they will tell you that that number a thousand doesn't mean a thousand. That's, that's not really a thousand years. What that really means is just a long time, okay? That's the way allegorical interpretation happens. And so, so here's the question that I would have for an allegory. So is Satan and the devil, you know, devil and Satan, same, same person as it's defined here in verse 2, um, is he going to be sealed up in a pit? Oh, yeah, he's going to be sealed up. Well, how do you take that literal and the thousand years allegorical? How come that's not spiritualized? And see, it, it, according to this point, it's so subjective. Like what, who gets to determine what's a value? And so what you'll see a lot of um, even reformed theologians or replacement theology is they'll say all the promises in the Old Testament to Israel now transfer to the church. And so when you read Israel in the Old Testament, just insert church. That's allegorical. That's allegorizing the text. When God said Israel, I had to just think he meant Israel. We'll just take him at face value. And so that's what you're going to see in the allegorizing of Scripture. Um, it happens really bad in the book of Revelation because you've got a lot of figurative. A lot of that has to do with the, the genre of, of, of literature, uh, this prophetic literature that, uh, that kind of lends itself to trying to get all you know, bedazzled and, and find hidden meanings and things like that. Um, but that's, that's one example, Revelation 20, where we'll see an allegorization of the text. Um, what we find in history is that this approach was not born out of a desire to understand and study the scriptures, but was born out of a desire to unite Greek philosophy uh, with the word of God. And we bring that together. And you, you can even tell from, from historical accounts and even what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians um, about, let me pop this off. I keep getting these notes popping up. Um, saying in 1 Corinthians that he didn't come to them with wisdom of words, that Greek philosophy was always interested in something new, something fresh, something that no one's ever heard before. And so what people would do with the Bible is they'd start coming to it and they'd say, yeah, you know, we've always thought it meant this, but it really doesn't mean this. And and, you know, sometimes you do say that. Sometimes you do because you've come, uh, you've come into an understanding maybe of a cultural 
thing that, that maybe you didn't realize before. And it's like, yeah, I always thought it said this, but man, I was looking at the culture. But you've got something to tie, you've got feet to tie it to. You've got something to tie your reasoning to where allegorical interpretation is almost like, you know, I, yeah, I was in a trance, I was in a vision, and I, God told me this isn't what it really says, and, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and, and so that's when you start to get into dangerous ground. In fact, let me give you an example. This is just made up, by the way, but just, just this gives you an example of an allegorical interpretation. Okay, this is a, a letter from one brother to another. They're, they're grown men. All right, dear Rick. I'm planning to be in your area the week of February 7th. I figured if I had some time off of work, who better to come see than my brother, right? I was hoping that you could pick me up at the airport on February 7th. My flight gets in around 3 p.m. Would you be able to do that? Also, I was hoping to stay with you, Christy, and the kids for three days to get caught up before I headed home on the 10th. Does that sound like a plan? I'm really looking forward to seeing you all then. With love, Jim. All right? Everyone understand what's going on here? All right? Reply. Dear Jim, yes, we'll be at home that week. Would love to have you stay with us. I'd be more than happy to pick you up at the airport on the 7th around 3 p.m. When you get more details, send me your flight information, your carrier, flight number, etc. I cannot wait to see you and get caught up. Love you, man, Rick. Here's the follow-up story. February 7th, 3 p.m. arrives. Rick waits for his brother Jim at the airport. Jim never responded with the airline carrier and flight number, but Rick did some checking around, and Jim usually flies Southwest Airlines, and he was able to track down. Sorry, Delta folks. Uh, (laughs) I should change that. Um, He was able to track down the flight uh, Jim would be on. It's now 3.30. Remember, he was supposed to get in at 3. Rick has still not heard from Jim. Maybe his flight was delayed. No, Rick just checked his phone, and the flight was actually on time. And Jim should have been outside by now. Rick calls Jim. No answer. Rick texts Jim. Where are you? Ten minutes go by. No response. Finally, Jim texts back with a simple, at work. Rick is dumbfounded by the response. Is Jim still in Texas? Clearly, he must be joking. Rick texts back. No, really, man. Where are you? Jim responds, really, I'm at work. Why do you ask? Rick, very surprised, says, based on your email, I was expecting to pick you up at the airport today around 3 p.m. What happened, and why didn't you let me know? Jim responds, oh, my email. I actually did not mean the week of February 7th. I just meant sometime in the future, and I did not mean 3 o'clock, but simply sometime during the daylight hours. Rick responds, okay, man, next time just say what you mean and mean what you say. Two months later, when Jim actually shows up, Rick is expecting Jim to stay for three days and then head home based upon his original email. Rick was shocked to see Jim had brought three full-size suitcases. And so when Rick jokingly asked, man, how long are you planning on staying? Jim said, I don't know, probably about seven to ten months or so, I would imagine. Seven to ten months? What are you talking about, Jim? Your email said three days. Jim responded, oh yeah, by three days, I actually meant over half the year. Each day actually stands for two and a half months. <laughs> Rick responds, Jim, you really need to start saying what you mean, or I'll never be able to understand you. I, I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, if we're reading letters, reading emails, and people were navigating life this way, we, I mean, we wouldn't have much to do with them after a while. And yet, there are, there are Bible teachers that approach the scriptures that way. And people sit under their teaching and go, wow, that's really cool. I never heard that before. I didn't really know that meant that, and this didn't mean this. And, oh, all doesn't really mean all. The world really doesn't mean the world. I mean, this is what many people do to explain away. So there's this allegorical approach. Obviously, that's not the approach we want to take. You know, the, the only limit in allegorical interpretation is 
the, the extent of your imagination. That's the only limit. If you've got a great imagination, you can allegorize any scripture all day long, have a, have a field day with it. And so that's not obviously our goal. So what we're trying to do is really approach the scriptures um, with this letter B description, a normal, literal, historical, grammatical approach. Okay, and so this is the interpretation method, the interpretive method that assumes that the Bible has one interpretation, and this one interpretation is the original message intended to be communicated by the original author to the original audience. And, and one of the reasons that that can be difficult sometimes is because, obviously, even the most recent letters in the Bible were written, you know, 2,000 years ago. And so we, we've got quite a distance between culture. We've got a distance in terms of continent. We've got a distance just in terms of history, not, not knowing exactly what the political landscape, all those kind of things we have to get into. And so when we talk about normal, literal, historical, grammatical, we're talking about really trying to, to dive in and understand what was going on um, during this time period. This approach is going to take language at face value, and it's going to use the normal meaning of words, phrases in context with which they are given. Additionally, this approach is going to recognize different literary genres and figures of speech as communication tools used to convey clear ideas, not to obscure meaning. I'll give you an example. You know, I, I don't have the verse um, written down, so I don't know if I could find it off the top of my head, but you know, in the Psalms it talks about uh, God covering us with his wings, or covering the nation of Israel with his wings. Okay, we would recognize that in a normal, literal way, but what it doesn't mean is just like, oh, that says God has wings, therefore God's a bird. That would be Really, that would be anti-normal literal because what we're recognizing there is in a poetic genre that God is, God is using metaphorical language to describe a point. Now, so what's the point? What is he trying to communicate? What clear idea? And it's just that he cares for his nation. He cares for his people. It, just like a hen covers their, their chicks, right? And that's, that's the point that's being communicated. We're not taking that as, oh, God's got wings, so if he's got wings, he must have a beak. And you can see where that allegorical interpretation would just keep going. He's probably got talons and he's, you know, whatever. And you, you see, but so we're talking about recognizing normal. So, if, so when we get to like the Gospels and Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. We don't, we don't, we're not going to interpret that, that Jesus took a knife and was cutting off a piece of skin and giving it. We're saying he's speaking, he's speaking metaphorically here. This is my body. Take it. You're, you're a part of me. That's what he's, that's the message he's trying to communicate. So we, we want to be um, able to just recognize normal use of language, which involves similes, which involves metaphors and those kind of things. Um, another term we want to define is the, is the, is the word exegesis. And, and the word exegesis um, just means that we're going to determine the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context by drawing out of the text what the text is saying. In other words, this, this Bible and the observation of it is going to dictate to us what the text means. We're not going to take our preconceived notions or preconceived theology or what we've always heard and, and read it and force it 
into what we're reading. We're going to allow this to speak and dictate what we believe. And so that's really the goal of exegesis. The, the ex, or it's actually the Greek preposition ek, uh, means out of. And so exegesis simply means to draw out of the text what is already there. And that's the goal. Is we're just, we simply want to draw out of the, out of the biblical text what's already there. This is uh, an approach or the approach that values the word of God over and above men's ideas. The word of God stands in authority over me. And thus, if there's a conflict uh, between the, what the word of God says and what I'm thinking, um, I don't need to change the word of God. <laughs> I need to change my mind. I need to change my mind if there's a conflict. And so we just recognize the word of God as the authority as, as our heart's desires, not to try to make it say what we want it to say, but to actually understand what it is saying. And if it says something contrary to the way we think, we need to change our mind. That's the goal of exegesis. So again, it's the ability to draw out of the Bible what it, what it says in order to adjust our thinking to it. And we'll just give you a quick um, illustration here. Um, so we're going to reject... Um, and when we talk about background, we're talking about our background, our cultural context, our experiences, our intuitive ideas. And, you know, quite frankly, for many of us, that's difficult because we think we're really smart and we think we really have a lot to offer and we think we've got all these great experiences. And, but, it, but when it comes to Bible study, it's not that God doesn't want to utilize those experiences to enrich your Bible study, but we, want, we don't want those things dictating the way you read Scripture, right? That's kind of the, what we're talking about in exegesis. And so we're going to stiff arm our, our own background, cultural context. We're going to come to the infallible Word of God, believe it's, it's God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, 2 Peter 1.21, that the Spirit of God moved men along um, to record His Word. Um, and so we're going to focus on some of the details to formulate our viewpoint based on the data and the text, regardless of our background. So conceptually, if, if two people, one from a very wealthy family, let's say in Alaska, ang- ang- white Anglos- Anglo-Saxon Protestant guy in Nome, Alaska, has a, has a good, solid hermeneutic approach, let's say on Romans 3, and, and, a, and a poor African-American guy in, in South Atlanta has, has been taught good hermeneutics. Conceptually speaking, they're both saved and the Spirit of God is, is teaching them and they're approaching it. They've got crazy different backgrounds, right? But, but conceptually, they can come to the same interpretation. You know, if they're depending upon the same Spirit of God and using the same normal approach. And obviously, the goal of, of exegesis is character transformation, Becoming more Christ-like. Um, again, adjusting our thinking to the Word of God versus cramming our thinking into the Word of God. Um, and, so, and so we want to just really be careful to avoid that. Um, another term we want to define, and then we'll, we'll kind of move on to the steps of Bible study, but eisegesis, um, and, and this is the opposite of exegesis. It's the determination of the meaning of a biblical text based on what I read into the text from my own experiences or background. Uh, Ice is a Greek preposition that means into. And so eisegesis means to read something into the text which is not specifically stated there. And, and what's going to be interesting, and I, and I don't want you to, to be frightened by this at all, this is, this is one of those things that as you, as you kind of see 
sometimes as you see yourself do things and you get exposed, it, it's painful, but it's helpful, right? And so what will be interesting for you to see is as we start doing some of these practical exercise, exercises and you start to write down observations, what you're going to find is as you share those observations and we say, okay, what verse did you see that in? Where are you getting that from? You're going to realize, ooh, I didn't get it from anywhere. I read it into the text. And, and you're going to catch yourself. And that's good because we're training ourselves to be good students and good um, observers of the word. So we want to be really careful not to read things in. It's very natural to do so. This is the approach that values our own ideas over the word of God. If there's a conflict between my ideas and the word of God, then I explain away the clear language of the word of God to match up with my ideas. So again, eisegesis is reading thoughts into the Bible in order to make it align with the thoughts that I already have. And again, just kind of a visual illustration. Oh yeah, I've got this picture. Eisegesis problem. An error has incurred in your private interpretation. Okay. It's so funny because every time I saw that on my PowerPoint, I was like, oh, what's wrong with that slide? And then I forgot I put the, this picture on there. So, all right. So eisegesis reviewed. Um, this is where our background, our culture, our experiences, our, intuit, our in, intuition, our own ideas, we, we take those with us into our Bible study. And so we approach the Word of God. We, it's still the infallible Word of God, but we don't recognize it as such. As long as it fits with what we feel already or what we think already, we're, we're good with that. If it doesn't, we tend to just cram it and explain it away. Um, unfortunately, um, eisegesis is coming to Bible study with preconceived ideas, looking for proof texts to view to prove our viewpoint. And unfortunately, you don't change. <laughs> when that's your approach to Bible study, you just don't change. Your character's not changed. You're not going to grow uh, spiritually. And so, not to not to pick on um, Calvinists, but I kind of it's a it's a nice pastime I have. <laughs> unfortunately but you know that's why I, that's why a Calvinist can go to John three sixteen and say when it says for God so loved the world they, they say well that doesn't really mean the whole world that means the world of the elect and you see they've taken their their Calvinistic glasses from, from right back here from their experience and they've read the scriptures through their Calvinistic glasses and they've explained away what world is and that's why you can take Again, just calling out names here. Sorry if I'm offending anybody, but um, that's why you can take a John MacArthur study Bible and you can go to John 3.16 and watch him explain away world and tell you it doesn't really mean world. And you can go to 1 John 2, uh, 1 and 2, and you can watch him tell you why the word all doesn't really mean all. And he's got no justification for it other than his theological glasses drives him to that conclusion. And so, quite frankly, if men like John MacArthur who have a great, educational background and understand the original language can do it we all can do it so we got to be we got to be careful right so we want to be really really tight in our in our bible study as best we can we're we're not infallible and so we understand that and so three steps of bible study um, this is the one we're going to look at tonight is is really just this observation and um, you know I would really challenge you this is is probably the most uh, important step in our Bible study. It's one of those steps that you, if you're going to be good um, at one of them, if you're going to be excellent in terms of time spent, this would be the one I, I would recommend um, spending time on and growing in. And so in observation, uh, 
this is our first step. We want to examine, search, and inspect the scriptures carefully and with great attention to detail. And as I kind of mentioned, but um, this step requires the most time if someone wants to become a good student of God's word. In fact, if one were to put a percentage on the time spent on all three steps, it would be a safe statement to say that this step should utilize 70% of your time. Now, that's just my opinion, so don't, that's not, don't worry, that's not scriptural. That's just my opinion in terms of the steps of Bible study. Now, those of you that have been in group Bible studies, what typically happens in these share and care Bible studies? Well, everybody shows up. There's a passage that, that you're going to study. Nobody's read that passage before they even entered the room. And immediately you read the passage, and the first question is, what does this mean to you? And we jump over observation, we jump over interpretation, and we go straight to application. Very, very, very dangerous. And we want to spend the right amount of time observing the text because if we observe the text well, the interpretation is going to be easier to, to ascertain. And if we get a good interpretation, then the application is going to be, have a better chance of being accurate. But if, you, if you're not good in this observation step, you're probably not going to be good or solid in your interpretation step. And then where does that leave your application? I mean, you're, you're way off course by that time. Okay, and so um, for many of us, that's why um, at times it's, it's hard to apply the word of God or have the wisdom to know how to apply it because we, we haven't taken the time to really focus in on these two first steps, observation being the first one. Um, and this step requires reading and rereading the text carefully, repeatedly, patiently, prayerfully, purposefully, and inquisitively. So a lot of, a lot of adverbs there. But reading, rereading the text. I would be curious, all, all of y'all went through the study. You went through the study in the summer. You guys went through. How many times did you read the book of Philemon when it was all said and done, if you had to guess? 150. A lot. <laughs> 150? A ton. I mean, at least, you know, you were talking about one chapter of the Bible. But by the time, and that was a six, seven-week study. Um, and, and really, the challenge then was read it once or twice a day. And you can see how much they, they read it. And, I, and I'll tell you, by the end of that study, they all could have told me, okay, well, they, they might not have had it memorized verse by verse, but they could say, yeah, basically in verse one, he's saying this, verse two, he's saying that. And they could have walked me through the whole book. But that just comes with rereading, rereading. And how many of you noticed something different on the third reading that you didn't notice in the first reading? And did you notice something or the 20th reading that you hadn't recognized in the first 19. And so this is what we want to do. And observation just takes, just takes time. Don't, don't be in a rush, you know. I, that is one of the most frustrating things about, uh, for me, I, I, it's just that when I meet other Christians that are in such a rush just to get through something, don't, it's, just a, it's a relationship, you know. You don't, you don't go through your day with, the, with your favorite person and just try to rush through the day and get everything checked off. I mean, I don't, I'm with Carrie, and if she wants to stop and get a coffee and we're not accomplishing our task, okay, let's get some coffee. I'm hanging out with Carrie. I don't really care what we're doing. I could be at an antique store. I could be at a coffee shop. I could be at home, right? It's, I'm with Carrie, so it's, I'm not in a rush to get, some days I am. Some days I'm in a rush to get through my list. Let me be honest, because my kids are here. They'll call me on that one. Um, the main question we're asking during the observation step is what does the text say? Okay, not 
What does the text mean? Not what does the text mean to me? Not what, how can I apply it? No, no. What does the text say? And so you're like a detective at this stage. You're just investigating the crime scene, but you are not ready to determine anything about the crime yet. All right? So, so when you think of observation, think of detective. All right? Let me use an example. If, if we walked into uh, a Burger King, and you were a detective, and you were called there because a murder had taken place, okay? First thing you would walk in is, is you, would, you would walk in, you would, you would cordon off the, the crime scene with yellow tape. You wouldn't let anybody in there. And then you would start making notes. You're like, oh, this table right here is knocked over, okay? But you wouldn't say, oh, this table right here is knocked over, so thus that was the murder weapon. You wouldn't jump to that conclusion. You said a table's knocked over. Okay, and I see over here, I see a little red substance on the ground. Okay, red substance. We need to get that tested. Because you're in Burger King. It could be blood. It could be ketchup. Right? You just don't know. And now that I think about it, there's ketchup everywhere. You know, there's red stuff everywhere in this place. So we're really going to have to test it all. And you say, well, that's, that's where, you know, that chair's knocked over. And then over here, these chairs weren't touched. But over here, I see a knife with some red stuff on it. Okay, and you wouldn't say, well, that must be the murder weapon. Well, because it'd be ketchup. It could be ketchup. You don't know if it's the murder weapon, right? And so you're, you're just coming in as a detective. You're just writing stuff down, and you, and you might say, well, there's red stuff, but what is that red stuff? You might write yourself a question that you need to investigate later. Detectives don't always go, well, what is that red, what is that red stuff? Stop what they're doing, go to the lab, test it. And go, okay, that was just ketchup. And then come back and resume their observation. They're just writing down questions. They're writing down observations. And then they're going to start to analyze all that at a later step. But at first, they're just observing, just like a detective would coming into a crime scene. We're not coming in to, to make a determination on what something means yet. We're just observing what it, what it says, just like a detective. So this step is full of questions. Again, we're not making any determinations about what the text means at this point. We're only asking questions and making observations about what the text says. So here are some questions to ask during the observation stage. What do I see? What do I see? What are the key words which need to be defined? And you know, key words, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about words that, you know, you're wondering if there's some kind of subtle nuance that, that maybe you don't see just at first glance or what, it, like, you know, the is probably not a key word, right? What does the mean, you know, and look up the, no, but like, you know, if you see a word that says received or, um, you know, just other key words, you'll see them, but justification, that's, that'd be a key word to look up, right? We don't use that word a lot. Righteousness. What does he use for righteousness? Um, these are some of the key words that as we're reading, we might say, again, as a detective, we're not going to define it right now, but we're going to say define justification. And then move on. Keep observing. Keep observing. Another thing we, we would want to observe or some questions we'd ask, what's the author's main purpose for writing? You know, does he specifically state it like he does in John 20, uh, 30 through 31? Or is it implied by what he says? Okay, and in terms of being, so just for time's sake, uh, we won't go to John 20, 30 through 31. I think you guys are probably familiar with that, but he just says these things were written that you may believe that he's 
that Jesus is the Son of God. And so when you look at the structure of John, what you'll see is, um, is it seven miracles, eight miracles? I can't remember off the top of my head. How many? Seven. Many miracles. So, but I forget, the, so that's the structure of the book. You'll see that he recorded a, a certain amount of miracles to, to show you and to encourage you that Jesus is worthy to be trusted for your salvation. And so when you, when you kind of have that understanding of the book of John, you see how it's all fit together. And so you just kind of moves from miracle to miracle and the responses to the, those miracles. And because he's given us the purpose in John 20, telling us what he was doing. Um, or sometimes it's implied. Now, um, you guys know exactly what this is like. You've been in a room where either your spouse or your parent or your child is on the phone with somebody and you only hear one side of the conversation. And, and a lot of times when they get off, you know, you know what went down. You didn't hear the other side of the conversation. You just heard their side of the call and, and you know pretty much what happened in the phone call. Now, you may still ask for some details from what they said on the other end, but you kind of know what's going on. And so sometimes an author will imply uh, their meaning or their meaning or their, their purpose for writing um, by what the main subjects they cover. Okay, so, you know, if, if an author is covering uh, a main subject and he seems to be hitting it, you know, every chapter, it may be an indication that that was the purpose for writing the book. I mean, these are just common sense things, but these are some of the things that we're looking for as we study. Um, letter B, what are the problems dealt with and or referred to by the author? Okay, and so, you know, we, 1 Corinthians is a great example of that. You know, we, we get into, um, into the first couple chapters. I mean, he writes this glowing introduction, and you think all is well in Corinth, and then next thing you know, man, he just starts dropping hammers, you know, from the top turnbuckle. I mean, these guys are, this church is all over the place. They're carnal. They're, they're divisive. They're, you know, a guy is, is, is committing sexual immorality in chapter five. I mean, it's just a lot of bad things. And so you can, you can understand his purpose there, especially in those first few chapters is largely corrective because he's dealing with problems. You can kind of see the problems that he's dealing with. And then what are the exhortations given to the recipients? You know, if you're reading a book of the Bible and, and the author keeps exhorting his listeners to be encouraged, don't fear, don't be anxious, be encouraged, don't fear, don't be anxious, what do you think was going on to the people he was writing to? Well, they probably were discouraged. They probably were fearful. They were probably anxious about something. Maybe there was persecution going on. And so you can see one of the main purposes then would be to encourage the readers to, to build them up. One of the other things we want to get really um, just good at in our observation of, of this scriptural text is the five W's and the one H. Um, W's who, who wrote it, uh, who spoke it, about whom, to whom is he speaking. So you're going to have an assignment tonight to take home John 3.16 and provide 20 observations. Well, immediately you can just go to the who. Okay, who wrote it? Who's, who, who wrote it? John. Who spoke it? Well, Jesus. Who did he speak it to? Well, Nicodemus. And so you, you have three observations right there. And that'd be, and then you would, you know, write that down in your, on your list. Okay. So um, that's important. You know, that's important, especially when you get into the epistles because you want to know, okay, um, you know, for example, James, James 2, which is such a big debated 
passage, James 2, 14 through 26, faith without works is dead. You know, that passage that deals with that. Well, um, who's James writing to in the book of James? Well, he's, he's writing believers. I mean, right off the bat, I mean, I, I know he could be talking about other things, but um, he, in fact, he uses the term brethren as you observe the book it, and, and you see the repeated use of the term brethren. He uses it in every chapter of James. He uses it right at the beginning of that passage. What does it profit, my brethren? He's not calling into question their salvation. You know, and that's clearly he's calling them brethren. If he was questioning their salvation, he would have said, well, yeah, and you guys, I don't know if you do that too, but I'll, I'll be talking to people and, and I, don't, I don't know if they're saved and I'm just developing a relationship with them, but I don't, I don't text back, hey, great to hear from you, bro. You know, I just, I don't, use that, I don't use that terminology. I don't know if he's a brother. So I'm careful with that. But anyways, that's, that's just a, an example of where that who could, could be helpful uh, in an observation situation to, to set you on the right path for interpreting it correctly. And, um, oh, my lettering got, anyways, this is B. You, I think you'll follow that. What are the main events, the second uh, W? What are the main events? What are the major ideas? What are the major doctrines? What's he talking about? Uh, what is his purpose in saying that? Okay, and so you'll, you'll ask these what questions as you're observing the text. Where? Uh, where was this done? Where was this said? Where will it happen? Where will it happen? Where is the activity or discussion taking place? You know, some of these cultural things really, really help us understand. You know, you go to John 15 and, and Jesus starts talking about um, how he's the vine, how he's the true vine and we're the, we're the branches. And you start to dig a little bit into the where did Jesus say that. And um, you kind of go back to the, uh, to the end of uh, verse or, or chapter 13 um, and he says having received the piece of bread he um, he then went out immediately and it was night um, and then when he had gone out and then what you'll find later let's see where am I looking for is it the end of 14 I think <laughs> no okay shouldn't have done it off my head should have looked before but anyways it, what you'll do is is when you look at where this was said a, a lot of people think that that Jesus was probably walking with his disciples in, in front of the temple. And, and on Herod's temple, out front, there was this golden vine on the front of the temple. And, and Jesus possibly, and this we don't know for sure, was, was walking by there and said, I'm, I'm the true vine, using, using it as an illustration. Um, there's a way to put that together, but I, sh I should have looked at it before. That's my bad. So when? When was it written? Uh, when did this event take place? Will it happen? Uh, did he say it? You know, that, this, ha this helps us in, in understanding, like for instance, the book of Hebrews. When was the book of Hebrews written? Well, you know, the, the whole message of the book of Hebrews was basically, you know, some of the, well, part of the message was, hey, get out of the city. Destruction's coming. And so we know destruction came on the city in 70 AD through the temple. And so we believe this was a, a final warning to the Jewish believers in the city at the time, giving them a, an exhortation to get out of the city before this destruction befell them. And so that would give us an idea of when that book was written, probably before 70 AD sometime, probably shortly before. Um, and so it's these kind of things that we're looking, we're looking for to, to understand. Um, the, the fifth W, why? Why was this written? Why was this mentioned? Why was this not mentioned? 
why was so much or so little space devoted to this particular event or teaching? Why was this reference mentioned? Uh, you'll get a lot of that in the New Testament when some of the New Testament authors quote an Old Testament passage and you're like, huh, I don't see the connection there. Like, what, what, was, he, what was he thinking? Why did he put that there? And then it might lead you to start looking at that Old Testament passage to try to understand the context. And then the H, how is it done? How is this truth illustrated? Are the people involved responding? How are the people involved in uh, responding? Okay, so those are just some some ideas in terms of what to observe and how to get started. All right, and so some some things that we want to notice and observe um, are the following, and some of these will just be very common sense, but in, in terms of just giving us a structure to approach, uh, it's helpful just to state them. Um, one of the things we want to notice, what does the text say, what does it not say? Okay, so many times we can read our own theology into something even though the text doesn't specifically say it um let's see, let me let me just give you uh, an example so matthew matthew chapter 3 verse 8 matthew chapter 3 verse 8 he says um this is john the baptist speaking to um the pharisees and he tells them therefore bear um fruits worthy of repentance and you know what's interesting about that passage is the word fruit is actually singular. It's, but, in, but in New King James, it's plural. And so that would be, a, again, another an, an observation. So, and that would be helpful to, to say, okay, what does it say? What does it not say, right? Well, if I was reading New King James, I would, I would observe that and say, oh, it's fruits. It's plural. So there's some kind of fruits, multiple types of fruits that they need to bear that reflects their change of mind. And then I would start asking my question, well, what are those fruits, right? And this is how we work through the observation process. Well, does the passage here tell me what those fruits should be? And then I might go to a biblical, um, you know, program or I might go to something on the internet and say, is this fruit plural or singular? And then I would find, ooh, the, the Greek, it's singular, so now it, it totally changes my approach. We're not looking for fruits here. We're looking for fruit. And, and what would be the fruit, singular, that John the Baptist would be concerned about in this context? Well, what were people doing when they changed their mind about who or what they were trusting to get them in the kingdom? Well, they were getting water baptized. That's the fruit he's looking for there. And you see, you just kind of logically how you work through that. Fruits, okay, plural, what would be the fruits? And so you're, you're asking these questions. So you're observing what the text says and what it doesn't. And so, so many times people will, like, and I don't know, does anybody else have a different version, NASB? Any NASBs out here somewhere? ESVs? What you got? What do you got? Look at, just look up real quick, Matthew 3, 8. Fruits, plural. Yeah, so King James and New King James will be the same. I think everyone else uses a singular fruit. Okay, bear fruit. So, bear fruit, singular. You know what's, in, what's interesting about that is I studied it too. What is the plural of fruit? Fruit. <laughs> fruit. So, it's like, even the fact that it's fruits. Okay, but, but again, these are just all, this is just all observation, right? I, 
Now, I've studied that, so I'm ready to make an interpretation. But, but when the observation says, well, why, why is it plural? Why is, does this say it's singular? What, what's going on here? What could he be talking about in this context? Those are your observation questions. So you just want to be careful. What does the text say? What does it not say? What, it, you know, what is it really saying? What is the, the historical setting or cultural significance of the time frame of our passage was written or the time frame which our passage is written about? You know, very important in, in narrative literature to kind of know what's going on um, with, the, with the characters in, in our narrative. We want to notice repeated words, phrases, or concepts. This is, I mean, just very, very important. You know, some of the exercises I'll have you do is we'll look at some of these repeated words, phrases, and concepts in certain passages. And you want to, you want to notice those because, you know, the author's not just running out of words and just putting the same thing down. You know, he's not like a sixth grade, you know, language art student that's just trying to get the page full, you know. He, the biblical author had an intention, what he's trying to communicate. And so there's, when you notice those repeated words, phrases, or concepts, um, you get the sense of what he's writing about. You know, it's like if you go to Ephesians chapter 1 and you, you, you count how many times Paul uses in Christ, in him, in whom, in those 20, what is it, 23 verses there. It's like he uses that phrase 19 or 20 times. So that, that ought to just key you off as you're just, you're just still in the observation stage. But you're like, whoa, that's significant. Or if he uses, um, uh, like in, in Romans chapter 4, the, the, the Greek word logizomai, which is just um, accounted. You know, he, you know what... Uh, verse uh, 3 in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him. And you'll see our wages are not counted. And you start to see that repetition. You're like, whoa, wait a minute here. This is getting repeated a lot. You just kind of make a note of it. It's definitely going to be a key word you define, you know, and investigate further. But you're just noticing these repeated words and phrases. So you, you need to decide whether the word is literal or figurative. Uh, just go to, uh, I'll read this, or you can turn uh, with me, but John chapter 10, 6 through 9, you tell me if it's figurative or literal. Um, Jesus used this illustration. Okay, so that's, that's a clue. <laughs> Sometimes the text will just tell you, but Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Figurative, figurative or literal? Is Jesus a, a wooden door on a sheep pen? No, he's, it's metaphorical, right? And what is he trying to say? Well, you know, if, again, well, how did they do sheep pens in those days? That'd be a good observation question. What were sheep pens all about? How did that, when you, you investigate that culturally, you see that the door was designed to keep, not only keep the sheep in, but to keep wolves and, and robbers out. Okay, so he's, he's a protector. He's a secure shepherd. Is, is, he's functioning like a shepherd there. Um, note the grammatical form. You know, this, this sounds minor, and I don't, I don't want to get so technical that you don't enjoy Bible study, because I... I wasn't a big grammar fan myself growing up, but, but this kind of stuff's important. Just to kind of notice it, just to take note. Is it an active verb? Is it calling on you to act? Is it saying that the action's going to happen to you? We're, we're noticing these kind of things. Um, 
Uh, I'll just, I'll keep going. We'll run out of time. I was going to give an example there, but we'll just keep on trucking. Uh, note the gender. Uh, male, female. Um, Greek has a neuter gender, which is kind of a funny word, but it, it, <laughs> it just means uh, like a thing. You know, it's just kind of a thing. Um, notice the number. Is it singular? Is it plural? Uh, notice the tense. Is it past tense? Is it present tense? Is it future? Let me give you a, an example of this. And again, just we're not going to interpret anything tonight. Um, let me give you an example. Go to, go to Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 38. As we're noticing these, uh, this number in particular, I think this is a good passage to illustrate this. But Acts 2.38, then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for their mission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Repent, it's a verb there. It's, it's a second person plural. Okay? In the South, we'd say, all y'all need to repent. Right? That would be how we would say it. it's plural. But notice that when he says be baptized, it's singular. So a lot of people will teach this passage and say, see, you got you to be baptized to be saved. And they'll say, see, all y'all need to repent and all y'all need to be baptized to be saved. That's not what it says. All y'all need to repent and the one who changes his mind about who, well, the passage will tell you Jesus Christ, let that person be baptized. You see? So, so even right there, just the observation of number. Singular and plural, it helps you to, along the way to get to the correct interpretation. Again, we'll, we're not interpreting anything tonight. We're just kind of giving you some, some ideas on, um, on observation. And so some other things you want to observe is the organization of each particular passage. And so you'll see that the Bible many times will separate sections into paragraphs for us. Um, it's a good way to see how the passage is constructed or arranged. Um, sometimes, just so you know, sometimes verse and chapter divisions do not make the best place uh, to, to start or stop studying. Um, you'll, you'll see sometimes that the chapter divisions actually interrupt a thought. And so as you're studying, you want to kind of make note of that and not just trust all the time in the chapter divisions um, as a place to start and stop studying. You want to see um, sometimes our passages will be organized around people, places, events, ideas, and times. You know, we see Genesis 12 through 50. Um, that last major chunk of Genesis is, is organized around four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Um, you'll see the first 11 chapters are organized around four events, um, creation, fall, uh, the flood, and Babel. And so you'll see sometimes the organization. So you want to, if you can recognize that in your observation, you want to you take those things into account. Sometimes the text will use contrasts, comparisons, illustrations, questions, repetition, and cause and effect as its structure. You know, we'll see that in, in Galatians 5, where he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. And we'll, we'll see... Um, and he'll use that as a structure that you can kind of study through. And then we want to just be an astute observer of structure and organization uh, as this will allow you to see the progression and development of ideas and arguments. Uh, and then it'll help us keep the passage in proper context. All right. And I think we'll, if your hands are not 
um, already numb from writing, we should be able to finish here in about five minutes, but we're going to zip through here. So one of the things we want to observe is literary form and genre. Um, again, just kind of important to recognize as it'll greatly assist in reaching the correct interpretation. There's really four main types of literature in the Bible. All right, we'll kind of move through this quickly. Narrative, and so this is designed to convey history and truth in the form of facts uh, via true stories as they happen in history. And so when we look at the narrative genre, you know, much of the Old Testament's in this form. Uh, The book of Acts is in this form. Um, The Gospels is in this form. So some of the key characteristics of this form is they they typically reveal truth indirectly. You you read a story and you've got to observe the principle. The principle that you're supposed to learn isn't a lot of times directly stated after the story. Um, This genre typically shows character development or deterioration, sometimes both. Um, You see that in the story of Joseph. Joseph just kept growing spiritually. I mean, the world was feeding him lemons and the the dude was making lemonade. I mean, you see that throughout his life. Um, But then you see Samson and he's going the opposite direction. He just gets worse as he gets older uh, until that that last that last thing uh, he did there in the in the Philistine temple. The narrative uh, often appeals to the emotions and imagination by creating mental uh, pictures it usually conveys a main point or teaches principles for application, although it rarely includes direct commands to us. Okay, and that's why you know, a lot of times you'll read a narrative and, you're, and, and you, maybe you've observed it, you've interpreted it, and then you, you kind of struggle like, well, what's, what does this mean to me? Like, how can I apply this? Um, and a lot of times it doesn't, it doesn't contain a direct command. You know, you get into the epistles, you read something you're like, oh, Paul tells me to do this. I, okay, I got it. You know, there's a direct instruction, but not a, not a narrative all the time. And then it can give more details than what is needed to understand the dr- truth being communicated. It's kind of like a word problem in math. You know, that's always the frustrating thing. Like, like they give you all these things and you, you really only needed the second sentence to solve the problem, but you, got, you had to read six of them. It's not that there's throwaway stuff in the Bible. I don't mean that. I'm just saying there's maybe more details around what the main point was. And so sometimes we've got to search for that uh, as we're studying narrative. Uh, Another form of literature in the Bible is just this didactic didactic instruction. Um, You know, this is uh, communicating ideas, concepts, doctrines in a logical and orderly fashion. Um, this is all of our epistles, you know, parts of Deuteronomy, parts of Leviticus in the Old Testament. This, this logical progression of teaching, laying down doctrine, laying down um, principles. Reveals truth directly, this form. It largely appeals to one's mind and intellect, requiring a rational response. And it often contains exhortations and commands usually leading to a conclusion or challenge for ac- application uh, or, or action. And so this is, you know, in a Bible church setting, this is probably the, the genre that we're most familiar with. We're generally teaching books of the Bible. We're generally teaching Paul's letters to the churches. That's, you know, generally speaking, there's obviously the general epistles and the pastoral epistles, but same concept. There's just a very logical flow of, of teaching that goes with this genre. Uh, third genre is poetry. Uh, again, 
designed to communicate truth much more expressively, uh, invoking emotions and feelings and using figurative and metaphorical language, word pictures. Um, of course, the Psalms is a great representative of this type, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, um, even Ecclesiastes. But it reveals uh, truth in word pictures by using figurative language to create mental images. You'll see that it's highly emotional. And what we mean by that is it represents and evokes um, strong feelings ranging from joy to despair. You know, it's just a wide ranging of emotion. Very, you might say it's raw. You know, uh, these, these poetic genres can be very raw. You know, people saying exactly what they feel right off, right off the gut. It uses figurative language and other poetic devices like parallelism uh, for emphasis, contrast, and reinforcement. And then finally, our last genre, prophetic. Uh, this genre is designed to reveal or uncover something that was previously unknown. Some key characteristics of this form. Of course, you know, in the Old Testament, we see some of this in Isaiah. We see it in Daniel, Ezekiel. Um, obviously, the one we think of in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. Um, but what it does is it, previous, it reveals previously unknown truth using highly symbolic and figurative language. It usually includes predictive prophecy about the future and often has visions which require careful interpretation. Okay, so let's wrap this up tonight. Some common mistakes that we want to avoid uh, during the observation stage. Okay, this is, you know yourself, so you know maybe what you're susceptible to doing in terms of some of these mistakes. Um, but one of the big mistakes is when you start to try to combine this step, at least initially, with the interpretation step. Um, keep them separate and distinct. And we'll try to do, we'll try to model that through this study. We won't, we won't let you get to the interpretation, at least not in class, until we've observed, you know, the ever-living tar out of it. And we'll, we'll observe it first, and then we'll move to interpretation. We'll try to stay out of that step. So don't, try not to combine those two steps. Um, Another common mistake is failing to see all of the details because of lack of attention and care. You know, if, if, we, if we give you an assignment and we say, hey, read this five times, you know, don't, don't read it five times while you're at a stoplight just to get through the assignment, right? Read it when you can pay attention, you know, you can take care, you can slow down if you need to, you can speed up if you need to, you got, you got the time to do it. See. Another mistake is seeing what is not in the text due to some preconceived theological bias. Again, we've called this eisegesis. Remember, reading into the text. Uh, we want to avoid that. Another common mistake is not observing accurately, reaching the wrong uh, conclusion. And so we want, to, we want to just be careful. When we start to try to make conclusions, we want to make sure we've observed appropriately. Maybe I should check that word fruits. Let me just kind of look at that real quick. Oh, it's singular. Ooh, that's going to change my interpretation because before I thought I was looking for all these multiple things that were required, and now I'm looking for one thing. Okay, well, does the text tell me what it is? And then it just kind of changes your approach to that text. And then another common mista mistake, this is what's going to nail us, familiarity. Have fun with John 3.16 <laughs> this week. You know, it's going to be so familiar to you. You're going to be like, oh, what can I observe? How can I get 20 things out of this verse? And so familiarity a lot of time leads you to assume that you already know it. You know what it says. And then you don't exercise your true detective skills. 
Okay. So even if you studied a passage, I remember, I think I've shared this before, but I knew I had a, a missionary friend of mine who, who went to Dallas Seminary and got uh, his, his master's degree there. And in his master's degree program, he, he had to study the book of Romans in English. And then he had to take a Greek exegetical course on the book of Romans in Greek. And then um, somehow, I can't remember why, but he had to take Romans in Latin. <laughs> so he had studied Romans three times. And uh, when he went to join the, the mission group at this church, they said, okay, well, before we, get, we send you on the mission um, trip, you, we're going to teach you the book of Romans. And he's like, oh, my gosh. Like, I know that book in three different languages. Like, what are you going to show me that I haven't already learned? And so, um, and his testimony to me was, basically, he had never seen the truths communicated in Romans 6, 7, and 8 for sanctification. He just missed, missed over that. He was still very legalistic in his Christian life until he began to understand those truths. And so it was just, anyways, you can get something out of it, even if you're familiar with it. Just take that time to observe. So, in your notebook, so if you want to, you can take the lesson tonight and put those in your three-ring binders just to kind of get them nice and clean out of that pocket. The assignment, um, can, I, can I borrow one of y'all so you just have it loose? Can I see that, Alyssa? Thank you. So, so here's the sheet in your, in your assignment. Um, you'll see John 3.16. You're going to make 20 observations. You'll just write those there. Um, you write a summary of the verse. Do, do not go to a commentary for this. And stay, stay in John chapter 3 for your observation. I, I know like if you try to start answering the who, you're going to have to go out of John 3.16 to find that. That's, you're going to find that in verse 1, verse 2. You're going to kind of find the who's. Okay? And all I want you to do is when you, when you observe something or you write a question, like, like a good observation, I'll just give you one. What does the word believe mean? That's an observation. You don't have to define it. You're just writing a question. Okay? What does whosoever mean? That's another observation. You don't have to define it. You're just writing a question. But when you write the question or you write an observation, what I want you to do is um, if you went outside of John 3.16, if you went outside of that verse, put the verse that you found it in. Okay? Because we're going we're gonna to challenge you on that. Because if you say, oh, well, that was... Um, I don't know. I can't make anything up on the fly. But if you're going to read something into it, and we're going to be like, okay, what verse did you find that in? And if you can't have a verse to go to, then we'll, we're going to cross that observation off your list. Okay? So you want to work to get 20. Um, don't feel bad if you can't get 20, but, but try to stretch yourself to get, you know, at least 20. All right? And so that'll be the assignment this week. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this evening, this opportunity to study. Really, Lord, our heart's desire in, in really going through um, this study tonight and, and over the course of the next seven weeks is, is really to get to a place where we can understand your word better because we want to relate to you better. And uh, we want to walk uh, in such a way that's uh, where we're walking in truth, understanding what you uh, have uh, communicated to us uh, through your word. And so we realize the uh, the great futility, even if we have the greatest observation skills in the world, if we're not depending upon your spirit um, to enlighten us and to illuminate your word, we, we really will come away with nothing. And so we just uh, corporately verbalize our dependence upon you. Um, and at the same time, Lord, we want to be uh, faithful and diligent to develop these tools uh, at our disposal. And we want to 
uh, ask you to uh, enable us to, to grow in these areas, especially in the area of observation, that this would be a good exercise for many of us. And, um, uh, and so, Lord, we just kind of commit and entrust all of these things to, to you and your care, knowing that you care uh, much more about these things and that you want to uh, communicate with us through your word and, and uh, communicate a clear message that we can understand. And so we just pray uh, that we would learn and, and gain those tools to, to understand what you're, what you're saying to us there. Uh, and so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.